Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts on all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. And that is exactly who we have today, a leading global expert on female physiology specifically in relation to endurance training and life in general. She is the author of Women Are Not Small Men. She's also the author of Roar. Um, she is one of the absolute preeminent researchers on the planet around this conversation of female physiology and how it relates to fitness and overall well-being, particularly in relation to the menstrual cycle. This is such a incredibly profound and fascinating topic and really is quite empowering to, I think, everyone, not just women, but also men to understand women better, especially if you're a professional, you're working with clients or something of the sort, or you're in a relationship with a woman in some capacity. I think this is incredibly relevant and a lot of the information that we've been guided with over the years is coming from young men, which that, as far as nutritional guidelines and fitness, exercise and things of the sort of training, and uh, that is just not appropriate to have a blanket statement for all human beings. So this conversation details that. I think you guys are going to absolutely dig it. We also have very exciting news. We are launching the revised expanded version of the Align Method book. If there was one book that I would give someone, a friend, a family member, a parent, a grandparent, to educate them on how to get the most out of their body in not just fitness situations, but also in daily life, understanding the mechanics of effective breathing, uh, understanding how to leverage your senses to feel more awake, to feel more calm, and also understanding the general principles of how to leverage proper mechanics from your body. That is the Align Method book. The expanded version, if you already have the hardcover, the expanded version includes a whole separate chapter at the end that breaks down specifically a, a movement practice that goes through and gets into all the nooks and crannies of your joints and connective tissue. And it's just fantastic. I'm immensely proud of this. You can get yourself a copy over at the alignbook.com that's the align a-l-i-g-n book.com and i think you guys are going to absolutely devour that thing and i just so greatly appreciate you guys support over the years it's because of you that i'm able to create a book along with the tribe of incredible thinkers and minds that helped with the production of it uh, including dr andrew huberman including patrick McEwen, including brian mckenzie and you know, there was just so many amazing people dr kelly starr did the forward for the book uh, there are so many amazing supports in reviewing and revising and so grateful to get to bring it to you. So if you're interested, check that out, thealignbook.com. Let's get back to the conversation with the good Dr. Stacey Sims. Pow. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I really yeah. enjoyed getting to delve into the internal happenings of females. I feel like it's no, something yeah. that's like every time that I have the opportunity to have a conversation about this, I feel like there's just like I'm so behind the curve in my own awareness and education. And it's so rewarding to get to delve in. So I appreciate the opportunity to make it happen. I'm curious for starters, just what was like the, the initial impetus to get you so engaged with the topic of female physiology in the first place? Why women are not small men. Yeah. Why women are not small men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
as a kid, really growing up with different role models, like in my TED talk, I've talked about how my role models of princesses were Wonder Woman and Princess Leia, because they seem to be able to do anything. Yeah. And then you get out in the real world and you feel a little bit of strife. And you're like, is it just because I'm a woman or what's going on? But then when I get to university, Purdue and studying exercise physiology and realizing that everything we're learning is based on the cis male and yeah. being an athlete and trying to figure out things for myself and my teammates and not getting answers that made sense, that's really kind of planted the seed for me to be, wait, this doesn't seem to apply what's going on. And what do you think, I mean, I think an obvious thing of why there's kind of like an umbrella approach to fitness and nutrition is because most of the people that are conducting scientific research are like, you know, probably between the age of 18 and 22 and in college and white males that could use yeah. an extra 50 bucks to strap some electrodes to their head and go for a jog. Yep. Is there anything else to it? Is this the patriarchy? You know, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Well, part of it is that, but part of it is, well, the funding models in the fact that scientific design has always been through that male lens. Like they're not looking outside the box, right? They're not looking at how are we going to include someone that's outside of this norm that we have. And and we also feel a strife as women not to participate because it is a little bit foreboding because we've never really been welcomed into that space. If we have been welcomed into that space, we're kind of like, oh, well, you're just part of the crew. We're going to put all of your data in. With So there's the history of women, marginalization of women that's carried over into scientific design. I mean, when you have the National Institutes of Health that says, hey, we really have to include women, you have to really think about including women. And it's been around since the early 90s and it's still not status quo. There is a bit of a fight, not only for from the scientific design and the, of the patriarchy, but also how women kind of feel about that being included or participating because it isn't in a female environment. It's never been designed in the female environment, but we're pushing through it now. Like there's more and more really solid research coming out that is just on women designed for female physiology, but we are still very far behind. Yeah. I wonder, are women objectively more complex than men from a physiological lens? Is that a stupid question? No, it's not a stupid question because it depends on which way you look at it, right? So people right. put it in the box, so women are more complex. Right. It's not complexity, it's differences. And people right. don't really want to accept differences, right? I mean, there's sex differences from birth, but no one talks about that. Developmental, like even in utero, there are differences where a female fetus is more resilient to stress. And there's a higher um, rate of illness and injury um, through birth for male fetus or male babies. And it, it has to do with the chromosomal makeup, but people don't talk about that either. And then when you get through childhood and childhood development, there are differences in how we should be approaching childhood development, but that's not really discussed. You hit puberty and we can backtrack a lot of the injuries in, in female athletes to the time in puberty where they're not retaught the mechanics of basic running, jumping, swimming, throwing. And so they develop these patterns that will predispose them to injury as they get further and further along in their career, because right. it has been just through that. I mean, the status quo in everything and all biomedical and even artificial intelligence driven complex systems is a cis male. So anything that that is different from the cis male is deemed as being too different to really acknowledge. And it's not complexity is so much as just rethinking what is the problem and how do we answer it? I think it's interesting looking at the, the, the menstrual cycle. And it's the like one of the things I've, I've learned from you was that the time of a woman having a period can actually be an, an ergogenic aid. It can be supportive mm -hmm. for performance, mm -hmm. which I would never guess that. You know, and no. so I think I, I think that uh, we could see 
as a completely ignorant cisgendered male, you could see that whole process as being like kind of a burden. They're like, oh man, like I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. But I, I think there's, you know, it's all just lenses of perception of how we, you know, how we we look at things. So yeah. I'd be curious to to dig into like what is the menstrual cycle from a hormonal level, um, and yeah. like what's actually happening in there, and just kind of breaking down definitions of what's what's actually going on, and then attempting to build you know a model to understand like how do we how should we be approaching nutrition? How should we be approaching fitness or movement throughout that time if we could do that? Yeah, for sure. So I always start with like, what is a textbook? But knowing that every woman's experience is their own. If we talk about a textbook menstrual cycle, we have day one is the first day of bleeding and your hormones are at their lowest phase. And then midway about day 13 or 14, we have ovulation and that's preceded by an estrogen surge. So estrogen goes up, drops back down and you drop the egg. And then after ovulation, we get into the high hormone phase because estrogen and progesterone both are rising until they peak about three days before your next period starts. Can we define estrogen and progesterone outside sure. of being just terms? Because I think that's terms. There's so yeah. many things, so many things that we say and like, oh yeah, t- testosterone. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like, what does that actually mean? Yeah. So estrogen, when we talk about it in this phase is called estradiol. So it's a hormone and it's typically called to be E2. So estradiol has lots of different functions in the body, but we usually just put it as a reproductive function that changes metabolism and antagonizes the other hormone progesterone. But estrogen is really essential for brain health. It's essential for gut health. It's essential for building lean mass. It's also essential for the way our bodies use carbohydrate. We want to store carbohydrate at certain times. When estrogen comes up, the whole idea is to change metabolic efficiency so that if a woman becomes pregnant, there's more available fuel for nourishing the implanted egg and developing the fetus. When we talk about progesterone, progesterone is actually produced from the follicle that that had the egg. After ovulation, it breaks down and becomes what we call the corpus luteum. Um, so it's a little what they call yellow body. And as it breaks down, progesterone comes up. And progesterone is a key hormone essential for breaking things down to provide essential building blocks for the endometrial lining or the lining of the uterus that's being built up to be able to house a fertilized egg. So when we see it from a physiological standpoint, it's putting glycogen in there. So it's going not so much in your muscle and your liver, but it's going into the lining of the uterus. You can't can't really build lean mass very well unless you're supporting it nutritionally because progesterone is very catabolic. It breaks down lean mass, it breaks down fatty acids or fat to fatty acids, all to provide building blocks and fuel for the uterine lining because that becomes the primary focus of the body at that point in time. But then if there is no implanted egg and progesterone dies off because the corpus luteum has completely disintegrated, estrogen also dies off because it's not needed for because there's no egg that's been implanted, then those hormones drop and it causes a huge inflammatory response. And the inflammation is what drives the breakdown of the tissue. So this causes you to have menstrual bleeding. So there's so many different things that are going on within the body with regards to these two hormones that it's not just about, oh, here we go. We have estrogen that comes up and then estrogen and progesterone come up. And this is my high hormone phase where I feel awful because there's so many different layers of what's happening to our body 
from our immune system, from our metabolism, the way we sleep, neurotransmitters, the way we move, is there increased elasticity? How do we deal with that? So yeah, there's lots of complexity within there. I appreciate that. And so I've heard you mention as well during the the first phase after the period, the, the follicular phase. So mm-hmm. is, is there a difference between the follicular phase and the proliferative phase? Is just a kind of a random, or they're not interchangeable, right? Um, well, if we talk about the specific phases, you can have proliferative and the secretatory phases. And that's when you're looking at what's happening with the uterine lining. But we don't really speak so much about that when we're talking specifically about menstrual cycle phases. We say you have the early follicular phase. So that's what we typically say the bleeding phase. You have mid to late follicular. So that's about day six to right before ovulation. And then you have the ovulatory period. And that's really only about 36 hours where you have a surge of estrogen, the egg drops, hormones drop before they start to come up again. Then you have early luteal phase, which is right after ovulation. And then you have the late luteal phase. So we say there's about five phases that have distinct transitionary points from a hormone standpoint. And with those transitionary aspects, there are different things that are occurring within the body. I've heard you say that, so women aren't just little men, but during the follicular phase, we're more comparable from a hormonal standpoint. What does that, what does that mean exactly? So with estrogen and progesterone being at their lowest point in the low hormone phase, this means that the systems of the body aren't as affected by these hormones. So that means that we don't have issues with motivation. We don't have issues hitting high intensities. Our core temperature is lower, so we have better heat tolerance. We have more water in the blood, so we have greater plasma volume for circulation, for sweating. We can recover a lot better because we can access carbohydrate better. We don't rely as much on amino acids for fuel. Our body uptakes amino acids better. Uh, Also, our immune system is more comparable to men where we have a response of, of natural killer cells to invading pathogens. But then when we get to the high hormone phase, every system in the body is affected by those hormones. And this is why we're least like men. And that's the area of research that has been excluded and women are most studied in that follicular phase if they are included in studies because there's a smaller amount of confounding variables to affect physiology. Is there some type of nutritional guidelines during that? Is it is that, what is that, like 13 days or so, the follicular, yeah. 14 days, 13 days? Yeah, yeah. So when we look at it, it's across the board, women need to get more protein because okay. just inherently fueling, we're different than men, where we tend to use more blood glucose, less reliance on muscle glycogen. Our recovery window is a little bit smaller than what men's are, regardless of what phase you're in. And we actually use more amino acids for so many different functions. So we have a reliance on it for fueling during endurance exercise. We have higher reliance on leucine cross the blood-brain barrier to kind of counter what's happening with serotonin. We also have to have a higher amount of circulating amino acids to trigger mTOR, which is, you know, your mammalian, what is it? long complex name for triggering muscle protein synthesis. So there's just thinking about it in that low hormone phase, it's about the protein. After ovulation, there's a switch where we really cannot access or use carbohydrate very well. So if we want to hit high intensities, if we want to recover better, we have to have a higher carbohydrate percentage in our daily diet just to even out the phases. And because progesterone is catabolic, we have to nail protein at 
regular intervals across the day to keep amino acid circulation relatively elevated, to give amino acids for building that uterine lining, but also give amino acids for muscle protein synthesis. So those become, you want to focus more on what's happening in the luteal phase because follicular phase, you can get away with a lot of stuff. But in the luteal phase, if you want to keep adapting, you want to feel well, you want to mitigate premenstrual syndrome, you want to mitigate mood disorders, you have to pay more attention to what you're doing. Okay. And then the transition into the ovulatory phase, it seems pretty, I mean, everything is magic, but that what happens with a, a female, it seems pretty magic in that I, I've heard that the, the structure of their face can change and like the, their, their lips can change, like the lips on their face. Am I making that up? There have, you is, heard, have you heard things like this? Like we can yeah. read subtle cues of, of, of whether it someone changes. is, yeah. And it, that's an indication of like, ah, oh, like that one. Yeah. She's ready. Let's go. She's ready. <laughs> um, it is, right? Yeah. And it's the estrogen effect. So what happens in the low hormone phase, the whole goal of the low hormone phase is to allow enough time for an egg to become mature. Mm. And when it becomes mature, it starts sending off signals. And that's when we have this estrogen surge. When estrogen surges, estrogen changes a lot of fluid balance. It also, so you in, increased um, amount of, of fluid in and around different tissues. So it makes women's faces glow. It gives a little bit more plumpness to the lips, but it also changes neurotransmitters where women feel more confident and they're more um, aggressive depending on if that's good or not. So there are different characteristics that change due to estrogen. And then estrogen drives luteinizing hormone to surge again which causes the egg to drop. And with that luteinizing hormone surge, we also have this increase in confidence. So there are specific things that these hormones do to encourage reproduction, if we talk about it from a biological sense. But when we're talking about it from like our normal life now, we can use that to our advantage either in sport or in the workplace, right? So we know that we have key meetings that we need to do. Well, we can plan it in around ovulation where we have more confidence and we have better cognitive abilities. We have better reaction times. And so there's so many things that we can do when we work with these hormones. That's so cool. To be able to leverage that in your lifestyle is like, is incredible. Yeah. Is there any... Is this analogous at all in the male experience? Do we have like an ovulatory phase of sorts or are we just always good to go? You're always good to go. Really? Always good to go. There's no cycles? Come on. We don't have like some kind of like meta moon cycle thing, nothing? No, you have some perturbation of estrogen that goes up and down and you have a little bit of testosterone that goes up and down, but that depends on stress and nutrient availability. So if you're always in kind of a nutrient fatigue state where you're not eating enough in and around your training or you're not sleeping well, your testosterone takes a dive. And this can happen Mm -hmm. in circles of days, but there isn't a real phase specificity like there is in women. (laughs) Interesting. And so then nutritionally, fitness, any guidelines through the, I think you touched on it already, but through the ovulatory phase, should we be, you said more carbohydrates during that time, more protein during that time? So around ovulation, the really cool thing about it is with that estrogen surge, women have like this powerhouse for anabolism. So you can hit a really hard, hard strength training or VO2 max session, and you get this magic stimulus to really build up lean mass. So you do want to focus on protein and recovery. It's right after the egg is released and estrogen and progesterone start to come up that you have a metabolic shift. 
where in concert, estrogen and progesterone together change the way your body can access carbohydrate. So now any carbohydrate that's coming in gets shuttled away from liver and muscle and gets put to the endometrial lining. So if you want to be able to do intensities and really progress in your training, you have to make sure you have more available carbohydrate. This is why you want to increase the amount of total carbohydrates in your diet. And I know that a lot of people are like, oh no, carbohydrate, that's like the, the four letter word. Yeah, but it's super, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Super essential for women to have carbohydrate. There's actually a study that was released and sent to me this morning about how women do not do well on keto or intermittent fasting. I'm like, been saying that for years, but now they have a general population study that shows there are sex differences in it because women mm. essentially need carbohydrate, not only for like daily life function, but also within brain function and brain physiology. That's interesting. And then I think there's a lot of potential shame that could be attached onto women for maybe craving carbohydrates. And then it turns into like a binge eating kind of disorder type thing. I don't I, mean, I, I don't want to like speak on disorders, but I think that, that there can be shame within that totally. because we're, we feel like we're all defined as the same. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm craving something different. Yeah. And the thing about it is in that high hormone phase, in that luteal phase, women's metabolisms actually go up. So we start craving more food because we need more food. And if you think about the full on goal of that phase is to build an environment that is viable for implanting a baby, right? Yeah. So you have to think about it and your body is, is more metabolically active. It needs more nutrient to come in to build all of this lining and to make it really carbohydrate dense, to have it structurally sound because you're also having very vascularization. So there's little capillaries that are being put in there. You're building, and I don't want to say an organ, but pretty much every month. And so it wow. requires more energy. So when women are like, I'm craving carbohydrate, I'm craving sugar, oh, I'm really hungry. It's because you need more. And the carbohydrate aspect of craving it is because blood sugar has so many different fluctuations during this time period because we rely more on blood sugar than any other kind of stored carbohydrate. And when women are told, hey, your metabolism goes up, of course you're having cravings. You Your metabolism's up by, you know, we say between 150 and 250 calories a day. That's like eating the first trimester. It's an extra snack or, but it's very being very specific because your body needs more carbohydrate. Carbohydrate. And this is why so many women have the craving for carbohydrate. Are there particular carbs that you would recommend over others? Yeah, I'm totally in the, you know, low on the food chain, eat fruit if you're craving sugar, because yeah. you get so many different macro micronutrients in with it. And there are cofactors within whole fruit that work together to make these things work, right? Yeah. I'm not about like, oh, go get a Snickers bar because you're like craving it. Right. There's a time and a place for it. But for the most part, you want to try to feed your body all of those really good things. Are you paying attention to glycemic index? index? Are you thinking more like like low or high glycemic or just get, get carbs in from a natural source? It depends on how athletic you are. We know yeah. that women who are not that athletic and they might work out two times a week, maybe three times at the most, but it's more low intensity. They do need to pay more attention to what kind of carbohydrate they're taking in because there's a predisposition for having hyper um, glycemia. So higher blood sugar levels because your body is just using blood sugar. We know from diabetic studies that there's a huge amount of fluctuation. So people who are new to using insulin or trying to do diabetic control have to pay very close attention to what's happening in and around that 
high hormone phase because we have these different fluctuations. Um, and then the flip side of it is we know that a lot of sleep disturbances that happen in the high hormone phase is from hypoglycemia. So the body uses a lot of carbohydrate. Then at night, you haven't eaten enough or you've been low in carbohydrate. Your body dips down. And every time you get into that low blood sugar, it's a disturbance and your body wakes up. So yep. people are talking about poor sleep quality, especially in the high hormone phase. And it's really particular the seven days out from your period when those hormones peak. It has to do with the carbohydrate fluctuations. And that hypoglycemia, from my understanding, can prevent you from going into to deeper like REM sleep and things of the sort. Exactly. Exactly. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsors for supporting this podcast. Did you know that one of the biggest ways you can boost your immunity is by supporting your gut health? It's true. In fact, 70% of your immune system is in your gut. Jonathan Jacobs, an MD and professor at UCLA, says the microbiome and the immune system are critically intertwined. This means that if you eat the wrong things, your immune system will suffer. But if you eat the right things, your immune system will get stronger. I understand it's not easy to eat all the right things all the time, so that's why I recommend recommend you take Biome Breakthrough daily. Biome Breakthrough contains powerful probiotics and prebiotics as well as one-of-a-kind ingredients called IGY Max. IGY Max is a patented egg-based protein that enhances gut health, reverses damage caused by antibiotics, and even helps with immunity threats. I do not think I'm overstating the case when I say IGY Max is one of the most powerful immune system nutrients ever discovered, and it's in every serving of Biome Breakthrough. By taking Biome Breakthrough daily, you'll eliminate bad bacteria, feed good bacteria, and build up your immunity and repair your gut lining all at the same time. Best time to take Biome Breakthrough is first thing in the morning. Mix in eight ounces of water and drink it on an empty stomach to experience less sickness, fewer gut problems, and less gas and bloating. So what are you waiting for? Power up your immunity today by trying Biome Breakthrough risk-free at biomebreakthrough.com forward slash align. That's B-I-O-M-E-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com forward slash align and by utilizing Align 10, you will receive 10% discount on your order. And they also have a one-year money-back guarantee. So that is Biome Breakthrough, B-I-O-M-E, breakthrough.com forward slash line podcast. One-year money-back guarantee. Got absolutely nothing to lose. And your gut health and overall health to gain. Check it out. Biomebreakthrough.com forward slash align. All right. So we've, we've started at day one just post post period that's the like the day one of the mens of menstrual cycle starts right after the period right and then like the 28 day on the thing i've been looking at the maps looking at the charts i'm trying to understand the charts, yeah. <laughs> look at the charts day uh, one is then, bleeding day, one, day 28 yeah. is the day right before day right. one thank yeah. you very much thank you very much all right and so then so we're at the the ovulation and so i want to finish the journey but I feel like you've gone through this journey so much. And as we're, we're talking, I'm like, I wonder, is there anything that's blowing your mind in this world right now? Because I feel like you've probably taken many, many of people through the, the general like heuristics of what's happening within the menstrual cycle. Is there anything that you're just like spellbound by or surprised by or like broader lessons that you've learned from paying so much attention to this over the years? Um, I think it's more a woman's individual experience because, you know, I come out and I say what we're trying to do is we're trying to leverage the hormones to improve our training adaptations. So we know that we can hit it hard when the hormones are low, like day one, you know, when the hormones drop. And then in the high hormone phase, we want to taper it back. And I always am very much aware that people confuse training and performance. Like, no, training is one thing. 
where we have a methodology that we're using our hormones as an ergogenic aid. But performance, there's never a negative day in the cycle because psychologically we can supersede the physiological responses. So never think that you're going to have a bad day of performance. You know, it could be day one where you have cramping or day 27, two days before your period starts, you always feel flat. One, you can do some specific interventions if you need to, but the other is know that you can hit all metrics of performance on any day. And tell a woman says, but the first three days of bleeding, I can't get out of bed because I have such bad cramping and bleeding. And over 35% of women don't realize that they have heavy menstrual bleeding and it's something that can be fixed. Hmm. So women walk through life with like three or four days of incredible pain every month. And it doesn't have to be that way. So when we start talking about a woman's individual experience then you find out more and more about what is happening on the levels that we don't talk about. Because we talk about the menstrual cycle and the generalization of day one is the first day of bleeding and these are the phases, but we don't actually talk about what is normal for bleeding. Like, hmm. what is that experience about? So the more that we talk about it, and this has just really come up in the past year-ish and really getting women to understand that there is a normal and then on the other sides of norm, there's help. It doesn't have to be medical hormonal health. There's other things that we can do to mitigate what's happening. It can be looking at reducing the inflammatory response so that the bleeding isn't as intense. And we can look at using um, like turmeric and some salicylic acid or white willow bark to increase the clotting factor and reduce the bleeding. Or we can look at using an IUD if you want to go to medical route that actually thins the uterine lining so that you don't have heavy bleeding. So the more we talk about a woman's individual lived experience, the more insight we get into how do we frame those transitional phases? How do we recommend harnessing those ergogenic aids called hormones when we look at those transitions between the end of the luteal phase into the bleed phase. So entering into the luteal phase, I've heard, I think pretty much most things I've heard about this have, have come through researching you over the last couple of weeks. But during that time frame, women are, I think you mentioned being statistically higher likelihood of sustaining, I think it was like ACL injuries, but their, their ligaments and tendon, tendons get looser. Is that, is that wrong? That's the prevailing myth. Oh, so, was a yeah. myth. And it's I'm perpetuating myth. it. Oh no. But ah, we'll the we patriarchy. will correct it. We will correct it. <laughs> okay. We hear it so much. We hear it so much. Oh, well, women have a predisposition to having ACL or tendon injury in around ovulation because yes, estrogen does create more laxity within the ligaments. But if we look at using food that has a higher amount of copper, it counters it. Plus the body already has some things into play that counters that laxity because mm. from an evolutionary process, you can't have women having ACL tears at ovulation or the risk of it, right? Because then none of us would be around because they all would have been eaten by the beast. But when we look specifically what's happening, it comes back to puberty, where at the onset of puberty, men lean up, they get stronger, they get faster. We see all of these, you know, sport attributes yep. and all of the kids' sports are based on male protocol. But for girls, young girls, their hip angle widens, their shoulder girdle also widens. And this causes more stress in the knees. So if we're not functionally sound, 
And we're keep running and keep throwing and keep landing as if we hadn't had these changes. It sets our body up for injury. And this is what I mean. Like when we look forward to injuries in our 20s, ACL tears, it comes back to the inability to have sound mechanics because they weren't retaught in puberty. And the other layer onto that is training loads. Because we've been following male protocol for training, we tend to load at times when we shouldn't be loading. And then that comes through as an injury because our bodies are too loaded and we haven't deloaded at the right time to absorb that hard training. And if we look at when women tend to blow their ACL, it occurs in that mid to late luteal phase. But they've been, if you backtrack their training, they've been training hard in that week leading to the period or the late luteal phase when the body really needs to do more functional work and deload. And it comes down to the training metrics. So there's two layers that we have to look at and try to fix along the way or rethink about how we're training women from puberty onwards to avoid perpetuating these myths of a certain time period around ovulation or estrogen surges that cause injury. So what would you recommend as far as training protocols or movement education for girls around that time that their their hips are changing? Yeah. So I do quite a few little groups here around this. And first we start with just understanding the body's going through changes. So instead of people making the kids run and do cross country, because it's a thing here every year, all the kids in all the primary schools have to do a cross country race. And we see around the nine, 10 year old mark, a lot of girls are getting injured and dropping out or getting slow. So pulling them out and say, we're going to work on getting your abs strong. We're going to work on posterior chain. So we do a lot of stuff with bands. We do some weight training with some light weights. So they learn how to move well as their body is changing. Because if you're keeping track every twice a week along the years, you can see how their movement is changing and you can make those corrections as they're going through puberty through their functional movement patterns. So they're building strength in the right way as their body is changing. And I think there's a fear of doing strength and functional training in such a young age, but it's so essential. Where do you think the the root of, it seems like a, cultural insecurity to have conversations around like sex and menstruation and like having an anus <laughs> like, these, like, like these parts they're like these like shadow aspects of humanity that we just kind of close our eyes and like hope it just works out whereas yeah. then we you know and then we extend that bandwidth to all these other you know like seemingly superfluous things it's like these are like pretty primary i know can i blame the puritans <laughs> Sure. <laughs> yeah, let's claim them. <laughs> that's the general scapegoat of the Align podcast, Puritan. So uh, okay. It good. works out perfectly. We'll blame them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of feel for my daughter because like they had the cops come and talk about inappropriate touching, right? And oh. so the, they're trying to give awareness in elementary school about inappropriate touching. And they weren't identifying a penis as a penis. They're using a different word or a vagina as a vagina. And they're using a different word. And my daughter's like, don't you mean a vagina and a penis? And everyone's like, <gasps> what? Yeah. You can't, you know, and she's like, but those are the words. That's what it is. The human body has, boys have a penis and girls have a vagina. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. But that's how, that's the language that we use in this household because don't want people to be embarrassed. And then she looks around and all her friends are like, I can't believe you said that. So she was a bit embarrassed. I was like, don't be embarrassed because you're using anatomically correct words. And what do you think the, the root of that within Puritan 
religion or, or, or culture was? Like, what was the, at some point, humanity as a whole deemed it a valuable idea to inflict shame upon the human experience? Yeah, I know. And I don't know <laughs> where it came from, right? Because you can look all the way back to like when men wanted to have the dominant power and push the women out of healthcare, right? Because sure. the initial women healers are now deemed the Wiccans or the witches and the witch trials are burning. And it was, you know, the men wanting the power and the dominance. And a lot of women's power comes from their sexuality as well. So they wanted to dampen that down. I mean, you hear about the Scarlet Letter, right? And those books and all of that just perpetuated the shame around sexuality. And mm. with that comes anything that has to do with reproduction. But mm. it's not just Western society. I mean, in tribal countries, they have a menstruation hut where women who are bleeding are like shunned and have to go there. And there are some tribes who are like, sweet, that means I don't have to do work for a week. I'm going to go in there and just chat. So it gets perpetuated that way as well. Yeah. That's like biblical times, like the red, the red tent. Yeah. You go. Yeah. I wonder how shame, if a person harbors some level of shame around their, their, their parts, their nether parts, their vagina and their anus yeah. or perineum, yeah. maybe that space, their womb. I wonder how, do you think that you could see any kind of like top down effect on one's physiology and one's hormones based off of their belief systems? I know this is an out there question. I know. From yeah. a psychological perspective, yeah, for sure. Because when you're talking about the shame that comes around reproduction, shame around the period, then women will want to hide. This is how we have a lot of the myths of women are just a delicate petal during their, their period. And when we talk about, no, it's empowering. You should be out there doing stuff. Don't feel like you have to hide. If you have fear and shame around reproduction and fear and shame around, you know, bleeding and, and all of that, then you're going to hide and you're going to like take a step back and it's going to be ingrained to do that and to pass it along. So there are definitely hindrances when you have that psychological and cultural aspect around it. We've done quite a few projects here around menstruation in Pacific Islander cultures. In the Maori culture, it's tapu. So tapu means it's sacred. And during your period, you're not supposed to get into water. You're supposed to kind of stay away because the blood is sacred and it's sacred to you. So mm -hmm. you're not supposed to let people know about it or share it in any way until it's over. So that becomes... From a cultural standpoint, you can understand it, but then from a westernized version of it, it is perpetuating the fear and the myths around the period. So this it's really complex depending on where someone grew up, how they grew up, what their cultural beliefs are, and then how do you put it into that modernized, this is what we're doing from a training perspective. This is how we can encourage women's potential. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's, like, it's almost like an opportunity from that, the lens of that specific cultural that specific culture would be like a, in like a noble silence is something that, you know, in like Vipassana meditation, like we don't look at anybody, we don't talk to anybody and we leverage or gather that bandwidth to introspect and heal right. within and you know, like be with ourselves. Right. I wonder, it's an interesting thing. Presently, the dynamics of like the, the modern hard driving performance female you know, and, and showing up at the board meeting and working late into the night and like, like it's, all the things. Yeah. Yeah. 
And yeah. we know that like our professional female athletes, I mean, look at the rugby sevens and how built they are and how strong they have to be or rowers as well. You know, they have big shoulders and they're super strong and they're idolized in their sport. But you take them out of their sport context and you put them like in a formal dress to go to an award ceremony. And the trolls on social media are so awful. They're like, you look like a man in a dress. So <laughs> right. it's that, you know, it's that context. It's like, I have to look and be a certain way to be successful in my sport and be an Olympian. But yet if I'm taken out of that context and put into general population, then all of a sudden I'm not accepted. And there's always this cross cultural, like it's just so strange because it doesn't yeah. happen for men. It doesn't happen for men. It's culture is, is weird that way where culture will build individuals up and then subconsciously want to destroy them. Right. And like wait for an opportunity to, to kill. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, like I'm doing this for you. I know. <laughs> Maybe that's the whole Puritan thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this luteal phase. Yeah. Uh, so following following the arc, so nutritional guidelines. So now we're at like day maybe seventeen ish mm-hmm. mm-hmm. on average. Yep. So during that time frame, nutritionally, fitness. You said thinking more like functional movement around that time, less like hitting it super hard. Or am I wrong about that? It's a little bit later. So when we look at the luteal phase, right after ovulation, we say that's the early luteal phase and progesterone and estrogen are coming up. And because we have this metabolic shift where we rely more on fatty acids for fuel and amino acids for fuel and less on carbohydrate, this is time where you want to do more steady state work or sub-threshold work, or you want to do descending weights in the gym for resistance training. And then as you get to the last about five days of the luteal phase, that late luteal phase where the hormones are at their peak and then starting to drop off. This is where we want to look at deloading, where we want to do more functional work. We want to do drill work. We want to have the opportunity for our bodies to absorb all the hard training from the previous weeks. So late luteal would be like halfway through the luteal. So is that like day 24-ish or something? In a 28 day? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. And this is why tracking is so important because women's cycles are so different. They change all the time. And if a woman has a really long cycle, so like day one to 40, then it's actually the follicular phase that lengthens. She has a greater opportunity to put in hard work. But if someone has a really short cycle, so it's a 21 day cycle, then the follicular phase is really short. So understanding how long your complete cycle is gives you the opportunity to dial in your own training based on your own cycle metrics. It's interesting before I was asking if there was any type of congruence with this with men and your response was men are more kind of based off around like stress, you know, if we're not Mm -hmm. getting sleep or if we're, you know, whatever, anxious about a thing. But I think that we're all indelibly tied to each other. You know, like we, like if I'm with, inevitably, you're going to be with females throughout the day. You might be with a partner or business or whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting, I feel like it's valuable for any human to understand that this is a thing that that women are experiencing because, yeah. you know, I think that, that that can alleviate the potential stress that may exist in a person because you're like, why? Why are you like why this? this? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> why are you so angry? Right. Yeah. What about sex? How does sex come into play as far as, is sex valuable for a healthy menstrual cycle? Not so much. Or, har- or hormones or, no, you know, so neurotransmitters? No, not so much. Other really? Than the fact that it makes people feel great. 
That's um, what I'm it, saying. Yeah, I know, but it doesn't change the whole cycle. But yeah, hormone, hormone production, neurotransmitter production, neurotransmitter. On. Yeah, more dopamine. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Better sleep. I, and so I think that there's maybe perhaps as well a myth around like sex during a period being like a no-no. But then from my understanding, speaking to females, it's like, oh, no, that's like like a really sensitized time. Yeah. That's like, that's like we're good to go. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's also the safest time because you're so yeah. far away from ovulation. That too. Yeah. Everything we learn, there's a book by Paul Artis called Whatever You Think, Think the Opposite. It's like one of my favorite books. I, I feel like most of the things that it's super simple. It's like a picture book. Hence why it's my favorite book. Yes. But yeah, it's there's so many things like that. That I think we learn and it's like staple, you know, laws of yeah. human existence. And you feel like, like nope, no, again, organ mm-hmm. meat. That's the stuff you want. You're like, why are we oh. eating muscle bellies all the time? Yeah. If you're plant-based, whatever, I support you yeah. and whatever thing. But yeah, as far yeah. as as far as nutrient and density goes, any animal in nature, those right. would be the prized parts. I don't exactly. care what anybody eats. You can be a breathitarian. I don't care. But as far as in nature, if you like draw it back to that, those so parts true. would be the things they're most attracted to. But if you go to Whole Foods, those are like, oh yeah, it's like we literally throw that away. We just don't. I know. It's not a part of our culture. But if you think about it, a lot of that is freeze dried and then sold as supplements. <sighs> that is true. Like yeah. the adrenal adrenal supplements, right? That all comes from pig and cow livers that have just been dried up and freeze dried yeah. and ground up. And often um, some of the adrenal glands from animals are also freeze dried and put in there, you know? So yeah. a lot of the stuff that we try to buy over the counter or something comes from organ meat. So yeah. eat it instead. I, I feel like I really appreciate this conversation. I really appreciate you. Uh, no, thanks. Personally. It's fun. I'm really yeah. enjoying this. Yeah, this is, this is good. What about sexual contraception, IUDs and birth control? Mm-hmm. Where do those play in this in this conversation of fitness, uh, nutrition, performance, yeah. like yeah. mental, emotional well-being, longevity? Yeah. So the most studied is the oral contraceptive pill because a lot of times it's used to control the hormone profile to actually do research. And that in itself is a little bit of a nuance too, because it depends on what's the dose of estrogen in there, what's the generation of the progesterone. So it's still fallible when it comes to research. Hmm. But we look specifically at the most prescribed, it's called a monophasic. So you have three weeks of the same dose of estrogen and progesterone, and then one week of a sugar pill. And a lot of women who are using an oral contraceptive pill are like, yeah, I get my period, but it's not a real period. It's a withdrawal bleed from those hormones. So when you take those hormones, it downregulates your body's ability to produce its own estrogen and ovulation. So then you don't produce progesterone either. And the other thing to remember that when you're taking these pills, you have a spike and a drop off, which is why you have to take them within two hours at the same time of day every day. And when we have these spikes and these drop-offs, it affects our system. So we know that in the first about five days of taking the pill, you have really, really good recovery and you can train really intensely and you can hit it hard and your mood and motivation is high. But after that fifth day, you get an upswing where those hormones have started to accumulate in the system. So each extra day that you're on it, you reduce your recovery and your ability to go hard and hit high intensities to the point where you're at the end of the third week of the active pills, that's akin to the late luteal phase where you should be deloading. And then when you start taking those sugar pills and those hormones wash out after two days, you're good to go. You're good to do high intensity work again. So the idea of high intensities is like bookending these pills. And then the subsequent step down is while you are on the pills. 
you also have more inflammation, you have greater oxidation, you have poor immune responses when you're on them. So there's definitely a time and a place for them. But when we're looking at it from a schematic of training and training physiology, I always ask women, do you need to be on a combined oral contraceptive or is there another type of contraception we can use? Then we look and go, okay, well, we can look at a progestin only pill because this does not perturb the body as much as a oral contraceptive that has the combined because we don't have that same graduated approach of decreased ability to do intensity. It also reduces the severity of the bleed. And women who are like, no, it had too many side effects, then I'm like, well, really, we should be looking at a progestin only IUD because after insertion, it's good for five years. You start to ovulate after six to eight months of insertion so you can track your cycle, but it controls bleeding, can't get pregnant. You end up with a really thin uterine lining, so you might not bleed at all. But you can track your cycle and be good to go and work with your hormones when you're on an IUD. And it's the same as your natural cycle. It's just the endometrial lining is changing and you can't get pregnant. So again, it's what is the goal? Are you looking at contraception because you need it? Are you looking at it because you need it for health reasons, PCOS, endometriosis? But if you don't, then let's look at other options that can improve your performance potential and allow you to build bone density, allow you to build lean mass without these hormonal interferences from a synthetic hormone. What do you think about the rhythm method? Oh. Pull out. <laughs> that's that's just basic fertility, isn't it? You keep track of your temperature well, and then you know, you, you know, not around ovulation. So is it three oh. days? It's like what the sperm can live in, in the, where, where do they live? The fallopian tubes? Mm-hmm. Three days, two days. So I think they yeah. can like, they, ha- they have like a three or four day shelf life, yep. three day shelf life. And then ovulation's like, two or three days or whatever. So you can get pregnant for a span of potentially like a little less than a week, like six days or something. Am I wrong about that? No, you're right. And so Uh, it's actually amazing that we are able to get pregnant and reproduce because it's such a small window and you can keep track of like women can keep track of their temperature, but you have to use a specific thermometer, a basal body temperature thermometer because your core temperature is pretty stable at that 96 degree mark Fahrenheit in the low hormone phase. But right at that estrogen surge, it drops by about 0.3, almost a full degree Fahrenheit. So then you're sitting closer to that 95 mark. And then after ovulation, progesterone makes your temperature come up by a full degree. So if you're looking at these small nuances of temperature shifts, you can find that window where you're really fertile. So you can avoid having sex in that fertile window and the rest of it's fair game. I'd like to take a moment and thank Element for supporting this podcast. Element has been a company that has been a lifesaver for me over the last year. They are the perfect blend of electrolytes to support my hydration. I pour them into my water bottle every day. I'll use it before I work out, after I work out. Sometimes I like it in the morning, first thing, just because it tastes delicious. That's a perfect blend of sodium, potassium, and magnesium to keep your nervous system functioning optimally and allowing your cells to be able to actually absorb the hydration that you're drinking. I can't recommend Element enough, and you guys can try it yourself at no cost. Uh, Well, a little cost, $5 for shipping, but you can get a sample pack by going to drinklmnt.com forward slash align, and you can try yourself a free sample pack. All you gotta do is pay for shipping. I'll send you out a pack. You can check out various different flavors, see if it enhances your hydration experience, see if it makes you feel more energetic, 
see if it helps with muscle recovery and things of the sort. And if it does, and you decide to purchase it, then they also have a money back guarantee. So you got absolutely nothing to lose. Then you can try yourself a sample pack now by going to drink, D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash a lot. That's it. Back to the podcast. What can a woman learn about her global physiology from having a deeper relationship or a, a better relationship or a more aware relationship of their vagina? Is there like fluids, smells, colors? Like I know this is a very male, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But like, so an example is you can look at your tongue and gather lots of information mm-hmm. about your health. You can look into the sclera of a person's eye, mm-hmm. you know, reflexology, you say, oh, there's tension in the lateral side of the, you know, yeah. whatever. Is yeah. there anything like that with a, like a map of the vulva? Um, not so much. Well, around ovulation, it swells, but mm. we also have changes in the texture of the, dis- of the discharge. So mm. around ovulation, discharge is very egg white-like. And mm. so you know that if you've ovulated, then you have a lot of significant egg white-like discharge. If right. it's anovulatory, you don't have that. So if you look at the patternings and you're following discharge, you're following temperature, you can really dial in what your phases are doing and if you've ovulated or not, which to me, it's very empowering because then you're like, yeah, okay, I know exactly where I am, what my body's doing. Am I under too much stress? Is that why I didn't ovulate? Did I not fuel myself well and recover well enough? Because anovulation is somewhat normal, but it's also a sign that something's not quite right. And if you start having changes in your menstrual cycle bleed phase, like it's short or it's long or the whole cycle changes, these are really good awareness. I want to say red flag, but that seems a bit, you know, that something's amiss where you're not quite recovering well enough to allow your endocrine system to be full board as well as training and fitness. So Every little metric that you can track, if you're really data-driven, gives you so much insight to really nail down the ability to withdraw stress and improve sleep, improve training metrics, give you which days you can go really hard, which days you need to dial back. Because again, we have this general schematic. There's lots of generalizations, but when you start putting in your own information, you can really dial it down to the T. The last thing I think would be relevant to ask about would be irregular menstrual cycles mm-hmm. and, and i wonder within that i feel like there's you know there's was the term amenorrhea is that when mm-hmm. you like stop having having menstruation yep. or stop having period is there what are, what are the, the gray areas in between that because obviously if you just stop menstruating that's going to be like okay obviously clearly there's something going on here but at what point should someone be aware yeah yeah so interesting enough in elite sport and high level sport when people stop having their periods, the unfortunate prevailing thought is sweet. I'm training hard enough. I'm good to go. But we know that when you lose your period, you're not healthy. And we actually see performance decline. We see injury rates increase. A whole cadre of issues happen. So we try to really look at what can we do to prevent that happening? Because we know that no periods for three months means you're amenorrheic. But prior to that, there are warning signs where we start to see shifts in menstrual cycle length. So this is where you start to have menstrual cycle dysfunction. It can be the entire cycle changes length or the bleed phase 
changes length. So if a woman normally bleeds for four or five days and consistently heavy, heavy, light, light, then nothing. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's one day of moderate bleeding, one day of spotting and then nothing. Then that's right on the cusp of losing the period. This is why tracking is really important because you have these warning signs in advance. And if we know that there's this menstrual cycle dysfunction, including really looking at the bleed patterns, then we can see if there's enough nutrition coming in to support daily life as well as training. So when you hit that amenorrheic state, the if you go to a physician, they're going to tell you to stop. You have to stop exercising and put weight on. And we know in this global society, recreational athletes won't do that. Professional athletes won't do that for a lot of reasons. From the professional scope, it's their contract. They have to keep performing. They have to keep doing what they're doing in order to make money. In the recreational set, exercise is way more than just being physically active. There's a whole social aspect around it. There's the mental aspect of stress release, the time away from everything. So if you're telling someone you need to stop because you've lost your period, there's one of two things. One, they're going to completely ignore it and get sicker and sicker. Or two, they're going to try to figure out how can I change it without stopping. So we look at the delta. We look at decreasing volume, maintaining a little bit of intensity, but fueling for each session. Because if you are not fueling for each session or fueling in general for exercise, your body perceives you being in a starvation state. And this is what causes all the perturbance is when you aren't having enough food coming in around that stress of exercise, it signals the hypothalamus, specifically kispeptin, that something's wrong. So you stop having kispeptin firing. And if that happens, then you stop having estrogen surges and luteinizing hormone surges. So you stop ovulating. And when we take it all back down to the basic level, it's understanding your bleed patterns as well as your total cycle patterns. So if you start getting into a little bit of a misstep, you have the opportunity to pull back before you become amenorrheic. And then I've heard you recommend more, I think you might have just said it, but but higher intensity, shorter duration. So like hit training or maybe plyometrics or integrating yeah. sprinting or whatever, you know, whatever that may be to you, obviously it's a sliding scale depending upon the, the individual person. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing with men as well. Excessive aerobic activity, you know, like marathons, just like running can also be stressful for hormones. Totally. Yeah. So we know like prevailing thought is the female athlete triad and relative energy deficiency in sport. And this is where we have amenorrhea and we have psychological and GI issues, but men significantly suffer from low energy availability and relative energy deficiency in sport as well. It's just the threshold for getting into it is different. So for women, we sit around 35 calories per kilogram of body weight. Men sit around 15. So when men start doing too much and they're not getting enough food in um, and they drop below that 15 calories per kilogram of body weight, that's when their testosterone takes a hit. And that's when their thyroid takes a hit. And they start experiencing very similar responses to the way that women do when they get into low energy. So that's the dead and fatigue. It's putting on body weight. It's not being able to lean up. It's poor sleep. It's GI issues. It's psychological issues. So food is really important. And this is what frustrates me with the whole diet industry with intermittent fasting and keto and all that kind of stuff is it inherently doesn't take exercise into play. Where exercise, we exercise 
to put our body under stress and then recover from it. But if you're delaying any kind of food intake around that stress, it's then why did you go train? Because you, your body's in a complete breakdown state and it's looking for ways to re, rebuild. And if you don't have nutrition coming in to help rebuild, then you have a whole cascade of effects starting from brain signaling down to muscle protein synthesis and it all takes a hit. A couple other things are coming up. Yeah, so yeah. what about distribution of fat. Mm -hmm. So a person that's like different women, some people, you know, they can eat all the food in the world and just go straight to their butt. Some people it's going to go more like visceral fat. Mm -hmm. Some people it's like, it's, is that a hormonal conversation? Cause I think that's, we, we think, you know, macros, micros, we think more like nutrients as we don't think of the, the hormonal impact or the horm hormonal implications of, of food. Um, right. And maybe they're not even associated, but I wonder your, your, your sense on that. No, they're totally associated. Estrogen is a driver for appetite hormones as well. So this is why appetite changes around ovulation, the surge, women aren't that hungry. And then when estrogen and progesterone both come up in the luteal phase, not only is your metabolism elevated, but you also want more food because progesterone cancels out estrogen. So when we talk about how fat is distributed, estrogen and progesterone are driving factors there. So the best case study I can actually put into focus is around menopause and the perimenopause, the few years leading up to it, where women stop being able to put on lean mass and they start putting on that deep belly fat or they just start accumulating extra weight because there is a muted effect of these hormones. So prior to that, when we have normal fluctuation of estrogen and progesterone, then we have adequate signaling for appetite control. We have adequate signaling for lean mass development, provided that we're doing you know, the physical activity and eating well. Right. So there's nuances within that. But even if you're doing physical activity and eating well, and you hit perimenopause, menopause, because you have a changeover of the ratio of the hormones, there's completely different signaling. So if you become estrogen dominant, then there's a signaling to use and store more fatty acids. So this increases the serial fat gain and subcutaneous fat. When you have some periods of, of progesterone that come up, with a few ovulatory, then you have a signaling again to really break down lean mass. And when we look at what we need to do to counter that, this is where exercise comes into play because now we need to find an external stress that's going to allow our body to respond how these hormones used to let our bodies respond. So this is where plyometrics come into play because plyometrics takes the place of progesterone with regards to allowing our bodies to have that fast, responsive, explosive power and to pull carbohydrate into the liver. We also know that lifting heavy is really essential because it takes the place of what estrogen used to do in with regards to signaling lean mass development. Okay. So there's so many things that these hormones do besides reproduction. And when we start looking at a woman's lifespan and around puberty, then you have your reproductive years and then you have the time leading up to menopause. There's so many body composition changes that happen because of the fluctuation of these hormones and the ratios of these hormones and how they affect every system of the body. Mm, awesome. Is there anything else? So many things. <laughs> well, I'm sure a ton more questions will come up. If people have questions for you, they can just reach out to you on the on the gram, probably. Yeah, like for sure. what's, what's your what's your handle on there? Dr. Stacy Sims. Dr. Stacy Sims. Pretty yeah, easy. Pretty easy. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then you have online programs. You have your book Roar. Uh, and we have another is, one coming was, out. Oh, when is that one coming out? Why didn't May. I know about that? I don't know. Oh, okay. Maybe we can do another episode. Yeah. We, it's called Next Level, and it's all about perimenopause and the later lifespan. Oh, another thing, the correction that I think that I was talking ignorant male talk again earlier. I was saying if you're going through the amenorrhea 
which I'm sure I'm pronouncing that terribly, you're stopping menstruation. Is that incorrect mm-hmm. terminology? You're stopping period, or is like the menstrual no. cycle is still happening? Well, it depends on how far in you are. Okay. You always have some low level of estrogen and progesterone because it's not just the ovaries that produce it. But mm-hmm. when you are amenorrheic, you don't have that luteinizing hormone pulse to create ovulation, which then gives you the significant ratios that we see. So you're pretty much in a, you can be in a postmenopausal hormonal state um, when you're amenorrheic. Yeah. And what's happening in the uterus during menopause? It just hangs out. It doesn't develop any it's kind just of chilling. Lining. Yeah, just chilling. This is chilling. (laughs) Pretty much. It's like, I've been used. I'm ready. I'm just going to retire now. (laughs) I love love that. All right, cool. So I guess check out, you can't pre-order your book yet. Uh, Oh, you can. Oh, good. Then then do that. You can pre-order. It's Penguin Rodell now or Penguin Random House now. I can't believe they've been bought out Amazon. But anyway, it's Next Level by Stacey Sims and Celine Yeager. So yeah, you can pre-order. And then you have programs as well that people can go deeper into these these topics. So we have right. two big courses and then we have little one hour ones. Amazing. All right. Thank you very much. You're I welcome. hope I didn't embarrass myself too much in this conversation. It's always it's always some lo- low level expectation there'll be some embarrassment. Um, but I really uh, enjoyed appreciate this conversation. So yeah, thank you so much for, for making it happen. You're welcome. That's it. That's all. Thank you for tuning in. Over now. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, you can tag me at Align Podcast or tag Dr. Stacy Sims at Dr. Stacy Sims on Instagram. We love seeing specific parts of the episode that you dug. I also love to reshare those myself. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That is such a supportive way to contribute to the growth of this podcast if you think it's relevant. And also, very exciting news: the Align Method Expanded and Revised Version is out next week and is up for pre-sale now. If there was one book that I I would give as a gift to educate someone on the workings of their body, not just mechanics, but also how to tap into their breath or their various senses in order to feel more stimulated, more awake, more cognitively clear, or to downregulate and come into relaxation. The Align Method book would be hands down absolutely my choice. That was the whole function of writing it, and it's available now. So you can grab it at thealignbook.com. That's the Align A-L-I-G-N book.com and you'll see it and it'll get to your place in the next few days and i think it's a beautiful way to start 2022 all right thank you guys so much for the support thanks for reviews thanks for doing you and i'll see you next week Bye.